You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 3800 Marlton Pike. For more information, check out circleofhope.net. So Pete Enns and Jared Byatt have a podcast that they are on the screen that I really like, and it's called The Bible for Normal People. Uh, in, their, in their episode this week, uh, they started off with a simple observation God's people tell the story. The people who told the Bible were limited by their human experience and everything that entails. They don't know everything. Their perspectives were heavily influenced by their cultural context. The way they saw the world was inextricably linked to their context, their, their assumptions, their biases, their culture. God transcends that even if they, the ones who wrote it, don't. And here's the thing that Pete and Jared, these guys that I like on the internet, get to that I think I think goes right with what we're working on in this season where we're expanding our hour. The fact that the Bible writers are limited by their real human experience is not a problem to be solved. The fact that the Bible writers are limited is not a problem to be solved. In fact, it is a good thing. Because it invites us, then, to be storytellers, too. We are also limited by our human experience and everything that entails. We also don't know everything. Our perspectives are also heavily influenced by our cultural context. The way, <laughs> excuse me, the way we see the world also is inextricably linked to our context, our assumptions, our biases, our culture. We're in this together with the people that wrote the Bible, y'all. We're in this together with them. And that invites us to kind of rise up to the level that is commensurate with what we've been chosen to, to tell. Because we know that Jesus is risen from the dead. We know that we've experienced God, I hope, in some way. Don't forget it. Remember it. If it happened this week, great. I hope you were just remembering it. But it happened a long time ago. Don't forget it. It's still there. That's what I'm trying to do in the stories that I want to tell this morning. We need to expand our hour. See it up on the wall? And telling these stories help us to do that and to a very good end. Here's the great thing. Our limitations, our perspectives, all our assumptions, biases, uh, and culturally bad experiences, they're not the same as the people who wrote the Bible and the people from different eras. If we work together with our ancestors, we get a much more three-dimensional sense of what God is doing in the world. We get unstuck when we share the courage and hope from a different age. Our expanded hour helps us to see things new and fresh. Again, we can imagine a, another possible world. With their help, we can imagine it's not always going to be like this, because it hasn't always been this way either. We can hope with the faith of Christ for what we will be and not just what is. Praise God. So I want to tell three stories from three different eras. One from our blog, which is called the Transhistorical, celebrating our transhistorical body of Christ. Uh, it's dedicated to this purpose and uh, has inspired this series in our Sunday meetings. This week, of course, it's going to be St. Valentine. 
The second story is my imagined aftermath from a story in the book of Acts when Stephen becomes the first martyr in Acts 7. And the third story is from the life of one of our own, Melissa Powell. I wonder I guess she's with the kids. She doesn't get to hear her story. She told it to me. I'll tell it to you for her. She'll probably do a better job, but it works for, for this presentation. So, three stories, kind of unadorned. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna tell you three stories, and I think that it's going to uh, benefit us. So, start with Valentine. The exact history of Valentine is murky. What we do seem to know is that in the third century, the Emperor Claudius II of Rome outlawed marriage for certain young men because married men were reluctant to leave their wives and go to war. And the Goths were invading from the north, so they needed all the soldiers they could get. Valentine continued to marry people in secret. And when the emperor found out, he attempted to convert Valentine to believe in the Roman gods. Valentine refused and attempted to convert the emperor to Christianity. Claudius II responded by sentencing Valentine to death. While in prison, the story goes, and this was maybe uh, elaborated on later, the jailer's blind daughter visited Valentine. And by a miracle, Valentine cured her, and she was able to see. Therefore, Valentine's Day is more about resistance, martyrdom, and sacrifice than romantic love. However, traditionally, uh, lovebirds mate in England around this time when he died on February 14th. So he, be he became associated with romance. Here's a poem that our development pastor, Rod White, inspired by these events, wrote for us. And I'm not going to put it up on the screen, so hopefully you can listen to it. The first almond blossoms had begun to green when the Goths began to mass in the north. Emperor Claudius the Butcher turned his eye to building men of Rome's underground. To the budding men of Rome's underground, sorry. Where love flowered, he put down his boot and forbade the young men to seal their vows. Rome is doomed if her imperial needs are thwarted by the demands of squawking babes. The church in Rome had grown like a wild vine, and tending it was a priest named Valentine, who was blind to the edict and married the church, and included the faithless in proclaiming their faith. The powers quickly found his garden of grace, burst in and beat him beyond recognition, then buried his love even deeper in their prison where 46 captives soon sang praises by his side. The jailer's blind daughter, in the first dew of spring, had never seen a flower or the first light of day. The saint prayed again, and, let, and light spread further. His last words to Julia from your valentine. On the day lovebirds mate in 269, they say, the guards dragged him to the place of execution. For marrying against the emperor's order, he lost his head in a final spray of blood and love. 
powers rage against the blossom of covenant. Each spring a new war, each day a deeper blindness. Every season of time, a new martyr to take a stand in the ever-foolish cause of revealing God's image. That's Valentine's story. Valentine's. It is. <laughs> the stories are sad today. Be a little bit better when we get to Melissa, but this one's sad too. Will someone read this Acts 7 51 through 8 2 for us? You stiff necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him dragging him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. When he had said this, he fell asleep. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And this is a story about those godly men in mourning. He tried in vain to hide his tears from his companions as they lay the body of their friend on the floor of his mother's home. Many had been crying openly there outside the city walls where he had died, where they had killed him. But, on the, but of the way, there were few who had seen it happen as I had. The brutality of the moment, rocks flying in a hail of death, and the injustice of it. Stephen had only spoken the truth, words rising like mist in the morning, had left no more water for my eyes to cry. My sadness, second behind a, a numbing fury, no, I confess, third. First came fear. Fear that they would do the same to me if they knew for certain that I was with Stephen. But now the murderous mob was gone. The difficult and practical work of bringing his body here to be prepared for burial was complete, and I was finally letting go. In that moment of physical relief, the dead weight actually on the floor, in the safety and comfort of the home in which I had once been so small, in the subsiding of my fear and anger, came upon me a profound sadness I could not control. But I didn't want to cry. My companions, <coughs> Nicanor, Nicholas, and Philip had shed so many tears already, I didn't want to start us up again. 
When they had arrived at, at the body, they pushed through the crowd and fell upon it, unashamed in their grief. I stood by incapable of accessing the depth of sorrow they so instantly expressed in wails and tears. It was as if they meant to begin his washing with the water of their own faces. But my face was locked as a gate of iron bars, each muscle flexed in an attempt to become iron, it seemed. My teeth clenched, my neck bulging, my brow deeply furrowed, my nostrils permanently flared, my ears twitching and hot. It was the custom to mourn as Nicanor, Nicholas, and Philip, but I could not, not then. And now it seemed too late, or too far gone, and I preferred not to begin another bout of crying among my brethren. Could we pray, or sing a hymn instead as we washed the body? Swallowing those first tears, I suggested a song without, without betraying my welling emotions. As Nicanor obliged with his beautifully resonant voice, my mother appeared in the door with the water. I looked into her eyes and gave in, crumpling upon Stephen's body with the sobs finally come. Nicholas joined me in the crying, but Nicanor continued to sing, placing his hand upon my back as Philip rose to help my mother with the water. The damned up emotions burst through me as a torrent from the top of my head to the tips of my toes tumulting through the hardness of every muscle. What I had felt as iron proved to be only hardened clay, and soon the liquid of grief had softened every part of me, which for several hours had been forcefully held solid. The initial burst quickly sloshed me into quietude, and as Nicanor finished the hymn, I joined him for the final line. Raising up from the body, I looked at my dear friends. All eyes were wet. I was so far from alone. With a nod, we set about the work of washing the blood and dirt from the body of this blessed man. My mother tirelessly left and returned, left and returned, fetching more and more water from the cistern a half mile from our home. We wiped away the hate, the anger, the misunderstanding, the violence, and the unholy thirst for power that takes Stephen's body. In basin after basin of red-brown water, we wrung out our claws, then, then dipping them in fresh, clear water my mother provided, returned to the body for more, until it was done. Other followers of the way assembled outside the house for fear of those who had done this to Stephen, they were quiet. They had brought a beer and a burial cloth, and burial cloths. Side note, a beer is a, like a stretcher for a dead body. They had brought a beer and burial cloths, which they passed into us. We wrapped him in them and placed him on the, on the beer. Nicanor and Philip took the front, Nicholas and I the back. The sun had already set and the moon was rising. We went without torches or lamps through the nearby city gate and out to my family's grave. Stephen had no family but us. Nicanor sang again outside the tomb, and the small group of us quietly dispersed 
still wary of what would come upon us if we were discovered in such an assembly. What are we to do now, brothers? I asked them, as we at last also turned away from our friend burial plot. Nicanor responded, staring up at the moon. We return to the work we've been given to do. Parmenas, surely this will make things much worse for our people. There will be even more in need than before. Peter and the other apostles will know what it meant. And we must do as Stephen asked our father, which will indeed be yet more difficult than feeding all within our care, Nicholas added. We must not hold this sin against them. Philip startled and turned to us. Did not John say that the Lord said the same when they did this to him? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Yes, that is what the Lord has told us to do, I whispered in humble resignation. And that will be harder than anything we have done yet. Nicanor shouted, But the Lord is with us! And none of us urged him to be quiet. End of that story. <laughs> There's a picture of Melissa in her 20s. Can you read her shirt? It says, Living Sacrifice. Perfect picture for this story. I Oh, and so this is a story that Melissa told me, and that I wrote in the first person, and invented details. The premise is Melissa's real life, but this is a historical fiction, let's say. <clears throat> I will not eat if Peace and Emmanuel don't eat, I told Ekram resolutely. Over his shoulder, Ekam, sorry, I said his name wrong. I told Ekam resolutely. Over his shoulder, Ekam's wife prays smiled in approval, but said nothing. It had dawned at me at dinner the night before that I was eating more than anyone in the community. That month had been particularly lean by my estimation, but I was feeling none of the effects. I had been in Uyo, Nigeria with the Save the Children campaign, SCC, no relation to Sally Struthers, for several months and I knew enough by now to know that, that my hosts were favoring my portions to the detriment of their own children. In those months, I had fallen in love with Peace and Emmanuel, their children. To be certain, I had fallen in love with, with them in the first few minutes. But months had grown that love to a passion. I loved them well. Wisdom. Rejoice. Precious. All of them. All the children in the community of 30 or so people who had dedicated their lives to the mission of SCC, they were all dear to me. The adults too, yes, but the children even more. They were the easiest to relate to. Their motto at SCC had become my motto. We meet the needs of the youth, whatever they may be. But income for the organization was intermittent at best, and keeping the mission going often meant going without for extended periods of time. It seemed ridiculous that the youth of our own community would not be met before mine. That night before I went to bed, I resolved to confront Egan about my realization. 
I think that Ika must have suspected that I couldn't handle hunger. This North American girl did not know what it meant to go without me, and he felt responsible for me. Plus, he was my host, and it was his honor to serve me. His children had grown well enough on the meager resources available since they were born. He knew what they could handle, but he did not know that about me. I didn't know it about me either. Deacon was correct in assuming my capacity for real hunger was untested. I'd grown up in the United States. What was I doing in Aqua Ibom State, Nigeria? What did I know about life there? Admittedly, not much. But I knew my heart. And ever since I was a teenager and my mom met a Nigerian woman named Ethel while in prison for political activity, that's another story, I had dreamed of Nigeria. Through my family's relationship with Ethel, something clicked in my teenage brain. The world was so big and so much of it had so little. While me and most of mine had plenty, I wanted to do something about it, anything. So when I met a man who had connections with a Nigerian-run Christian organization taking care of the youth in Uyo, Nigeria, looking for North American support, I saw it as a sign. And as soon as possible, I got on a plane to Lagos, then another plane to Caliban, then ground transport to Uyo, a city of some 500,000 people. I wanted to love them as best I could. And peace, Emmanuel, wisdom, rejoice, precious, and the rest of the SDC children most of all. There wasn't much of an argument from Ikam in response to my declaration, I don't eat if the children don't eat, became another one of my new mottos. And the rest of the SCC community loved me for it. It was not my intention to gain the respect among my colleagues, but that was one result. I was no longer a guest. My allegiance was made clear to them, and incidentally I became a more real part of the community by choosing to suffer with them. And suffer I did. Living sacrificially hurts. It hurts and it transforms. It made me into who I am in many ways, and I return to that young woman's courage often. When I'm facing something hard, sometimes I marvel at her. That adventurer, that hunger chooser, that declaration deliverer, that Jesus follower who is also me. I give you her story for your own courage. I give you my story. That's it. Let's let that settle in for just a second. I'll pray and we can talk back. God, thank you for these three compassion-filled, giving, rebelling, resisting people, Stephen, Valentine, and Melissa. May we share a portion of their courage. May we be blessed with their faith 
have some of their love to give when we need it. You're binding us all together so this is possible. Thank you for that again. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.